I don't know how to describe it other than like like a demon type of sound. But it's silhouetted, hulking, every bit of five and a half feet wide, 13 to 14 foot tall, pitch black. The one thing that ran through my mind when I had this encounter was I don't have a big enough gun. Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to Creek Devil. Now, some of the other things that you and I have talked about is uh, different reports that people talk about and different uh, physical features that, that people talk about and different uh, uh, travel. We had proof that these things, about 80% of them, actually migrate. And they would close down the, the bombing ranges um, in spring and in fall so that these things, they call it range maintenance, and these things would actually pass on the range. And those ranges out there, they can tell you the jackrabbits. And they knew it went on. And they would just close it down and let it, let it do its thing for a week or so. And then they would open everything back up after it was finished and uh, you know, move on from there. But there have been uh, different reports from people, especially um, the people who uh, work with those fire towers. Now, there's multiple reports of people who work with fire towers for the park service, and they kept journals on everything that went on, and they were supposed to turn those in at the end of the season, and then they could get hired back the following year. And there was reports of those and people seeing the nests being built higher than trees. And these things would go in and they would take different sticks and limbs. They would literally build a nest like a bird way up in the trees. And they would get in them and they made the size high enough that they could lay down and not be seen. And most of the time they would stay there and sleep during the day. And then once it started getting dark, they would come out and start foraging for food. Uh, they had certain uh, areas that they would search for food, not uncommon for the stuff that we were reading for them to travel 40 to 60 miles at a night to do that. And then they would uh, be in an area for a while, then they would just move on to somewhere else. And there was many, many reports by these uh, people also that were firefighters from parts smoke jumpers, some of the uh, people who just worked in the park in general, and they wouldn't come out and talk to the public about it, but they would talk amongst themselves, and they would mention different things to the bosses, and they would work its way up, and then the higher-ups would tell them, to, you know, don't, don't let it out to anybody else about what actually took place. And I do know that like Yellowstone and, and most of the parks, they have winter maintenance crew that will stay there. And they did have problems with these things coming in during the winter months 
breaking into cabins, taking food, uh, people coming up missing, hunters coming up missing. It's pretty incredible, some of the stuff that they got to read. And uh, one of the guys that worked with me, he's still a great friend of mine. We talked about Lincoln's. And he was an intel guy. And one night, we were deployed in the Middle East. And we got talking on the subject. There was just three or four there at night, doing what they call CSAR. Uh, we were just that uh, alert in case somebody got shot down that uh, we would go help. And we got talking about this. And we used to have these machines that uh, you could pull up live imagery on. And they used them a lot for targeting. And he said to me, he says, you know, there's just a file here, Mark, Noah's Ark. I'm like, no shit. He goes, yeah. So he pulled it up and it's just shot something on the mountain. And you can see some stuff sticking out. It was really snowy. And we were talking about the whole Bigfoot subject. And he goes, oh yeah. He says, there's pictures, really clear pictures. And so he pulled them up, and these were taken in the uh, uh, Canadian Rockies. And here are four or five of these things standing there, sort of look, one's looking up, and the other ones are looking out over the top of this mountain. And our imagery is very clear. Now, quick example. In the 1950s, the SR-71 could take a picture of a dime laying on the ground and tell you what gear it's made, how many scratches are in the face. And the stuff that we had later on would be even better. These pictures were incredible, the amount of detail in it. And I remember seeing the thing about, um, I'm not going to mention its name, but uh, the fellow in Canada that's always trying to promote himself, and he supposedly had pictures of video of these things, and what he has looks like something somebody put together in their garage compared to what I saw, and there is no doubt in my mind that what I saw were actual, the real deal. There's no doubt about it. There's no way someone could have done that level of detail in something been hundreds of miles from anywhere on top of the mountain and have a satellite just shoot a picture and boom, there they are. The chances of that is like zero. We had been up in Canada and when we were up there thing called Maple Flag, and it lasts about six weeks. Groups from all over the world come in, and the aircraft come in, it's, it's, it's a pretty big deal. We were up there, we were in the briefing the first day, and they brought in a uh, chief from the local tribe. This guy came in, and his entire briefing was about Sasquatch. 
And one of the guys in the crowd was just cackling and laughing. And he was a young captain. And the chief walked over to him right in front of him. He says, do you think there's humor in this? And he goes, there's no such thing. And he goes, really? So he starts his slideshow presentation. And he starts showing about uh, people that had been found out that had uh, been killed by these things. And he actually had a rifle there that he pulled out that had been just twisted. There's no way you or I could have done this twisting of this thing. It just it wouldn't happen. And he told about what to do if you ran in. And he says this is very critical on how to not get hurt. He said these things consider your hands a weapon. He said if you were to encounter one of these, do not look it in the eye. He said you sort of tilt your head down to keep an eye on it, and you turn your palms out. If you have your weapon on you, you swing it over your back. You turn your palms out, and you just back away. You don't show any aggression whatsoever. Back out of there and just start walking. And once you get back where you feel comfortable, you turn to the side and you keep walking, but you keep your palms where they can see them. Then you can turn your back and walk. And he said, anybody that's ever done that has never been attacked. And I thought that was one of the most informative things that I had ever heard anyone say about dealing with. Now, we had problems in certain areas of the country. There's problems with them at the missile sites up in uh, the Dakotas, in uh, Montana. Uh, they even got in, in behind the fences where the, uh, where the, the people are that they stay at the underground missile silos. And I got talking to a guy up there who was a cop, and they, they were, back then they were called security. We have security and law enforcement, these guys were security. And I actually got to become very friends with this guy after uh, talking to him in depth about this. And he's like, who do you work for? We called him. And he ended up uh, coming over to us. He uh, told me that they were inside the uh, missile area, and one of the alarms went off. And on the video, they could just see this blurry thing show up clear. But it was almost as tall as the fence. And this thing basically uh, walked back a little bit and ran and jumped over the fence. And was inside where they were. So they went inside where the garage was and locked themselves in until it left. And they had uh, pictures. There was, the tracks were still there. They, and this was in the winter. And uh, this wasn't the first encounter they'd ever had. They had a truck get flipped over. And the guy in the truck was damn near killed by one of these things. And uh, there was a lot of, lot of things that went on. And in some of the areas, they have what they call uh, PRP, 
and it has to do with the use of the program. And these guys are questions. Uh, they, they have to pretty much have a spotless record. They have to be able to be dependent upon. And they had had things go on. And if these guys get caught BSing anybody on it, they're, they're off the PRP, and that's just a big stain on your record. So they, uh, they had to be honest about it, and they would tell about things that went on. They would fill out reports. And especially being around the nuclear stuff, it got pretty interesting because the government then started wanting to know what are these things doing there? What, what's going on with them? And no one had an answer. They started taking the subject on more serious. But this, um, uh, this entire uh, subject, after the Cold uh, uh, War hit in, then the unit got disbanded. And today, uh, it no longer exists. It's, it's not there. But uh, stuff that's left from it is now a museum. And the museum's now on Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas. But they don't have anything in there that I know of about the uh, Bigfoot subject. That had all got shipped out. And I have no idea where that went. Because everybody that worked there when the Cold War ended, you basically had your choice of assignment or where you wanted to go to. And anybody who's been in the military can tell you there's two sides of the military. You have logistics and you have operations. And when they asked me where I wanted to go, I said, I want to go somewhere on the operations side. And so I went. To operation. I'm not going to say what I did or where it's at, but some of the guys, uh, they didn't want to go to the operations side. They had all this experience. So they chose different career paths. I know a few of them that got out and actually went to work for the government. And when I was on the operations side, I went through a bunch of training. Then I was stationed on the East Coast, and I deployed a lot. And one of the times that I was deployed, we were in a very rugged area, and we had these uh, night scopes. And small team of us on the side of the mountain. And we were supposed to be getting picked up the next day. And one of our guys, he nudges me and says, you've got to see this. What is it? Don't move the scope, just look through the scope. And I looked through, and there was something that was about 14 foot tall. It was all black. It was covered in hair. It was climbing the side of the mountain. And the side of the mountain was... And this thing was going up like it was 
And so everybody else wanted to see as our leader. He's like, what is that thing? And in these scopes, it'll give you distance and uh, tell how big something is. This thing is just a little well, it started uh, moving, and it, it must have heard us or something. Because it started coming down the side of the mountain. And the team leader says, radio for a chopper to get us now. And this chopper came in. And we got on there, and we were lifting off, and this thing was making us way to where we had been. And our uh, uh, door gunner guy was like, what the heck is that? But there's areas over there that it looks like it's a quarter mile away, but it might take you four hours to get there because it's so rugged. These areas, these are very high altitude areas. <laughs> this thing is covered. The, the distance in about three hours is it, just incredible. The, the amount of distance is There's a lot of other guys up there that are seeing stuff also. And uh, they had many, many, many other locals tell them about these uh, creatures being over there. And they talked that when the Russians were there, that these things were uh, more abundant and that bodies would disappear, that they would even get shot, whatever, the bodies would vanish. And they thought that these things were actually taking them and uh, sources of food source. You're out in the middle of nowhere like that. What are these creatures going to do? When, when we were uh, bringing stuff out of the Middle East in the late 80s, when the Russians were over there uh, fighting, we heard reports from a lot of the people over there about uh, these things. But they had a, a different name for them than anything I ever heard. I can't remember what the name is right now, but they, it's part of their culture. It really is. And the, in the northeastern part of that country, they did call it the Yeti. They had another name for it. But these things, like I said, they're, they're all over the world. We have reports from everywhere. And some of our guys even used to you know, hit up some of these conferences and sit around and listen to they recorded and they bring it back and pull the good information on the spot. It's, it's pretty amazing what, uh, what the government has and what they know about it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. 
All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.